Good evening, everybody. Good afternoon, buddy. We are back once again. I'm glad to be here. What about y'all? I am at home, so yes. You are. You are home. You're comfy. <laughs> Christy's got her blankie. I do have my blankie. Katie's got a toddler and a six-month-old. She could be more comfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> but we are here to study the Bible, and we're going to talk tonight about the Church of Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles and you're listening to us, go ahead and turn there and we're going to read through verses 1 through 7. And just to kind of explain a little bit, we're going to be doing our study of the churches on Friday nights. So Sunday, we're going to continue our study of Revelation, but we're going to move into chapter 4. I know that sounds kind of weird, but I feel like you're skipping to the meat. Yeah, we're kind of jumping a little bit more to the end times section, mm -hmm. really. I mean, I, I feel the need to talk about it. And I could spend a good deal of time talking about the churches. And I don't think I'm going to be able to finish everything tonight talking about Ephesus. And since there are seven churches, it may take some time to get through it. I don't want to rush it. But I do want to start talking about the end times. I think it's important to live in light of that, especially with the way things are going around us. And so we're going to just kind of go straight into Revelation chapter 4 on Sunday. And on Sundays, we're just going to go from that point. On Fridays, we'll keep talking about the churches. And so whenever we finish talking about the churches, I don't know what comes next. Okay, so I'll just pray about it as we approach that. But this is what we're going to be doing for a while. So let's read the text first. And then after that, we'll talk about the different ways people interpret it. And then we'll break it down. So chapter 2, verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and, hast, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so there are four different ways to approach not just the church of Ephesus, but all the churches. So let's talk about our options. This is a question of hermeneutics. If you're listening, you don't know what hermeneutics means. It's a system of interpretation, okay? So exegesis would pertain to a particular passage. Like, what does this passage mean? Hermeneutics is a little bit more broad. It's the principles that one has when one approaches any given passage. So when it comes to that question, there are four different options. So the first option is we could take these letters as just purely historical. So it just so happens that there are seven churches. Mm. And these seven churches are churches that John knew about. Okay, not only knew about. He's the overseer of all these churches as an apostle, okay? So Paul, he had his churches that he writes to. Um, Peter had his own flock that he shepherded. These are John's churches, okay, in, in an area that he's very familiar with. And so that's why he's writing to them. 
So, um, but Paul re- re- writes to the Ephesians. Yes, at this point, Paul would have been dead. Been dead. He's already passed away. Oh, of course. Yeah. Sorry. But all My these bad. churches, if you look at them on a map, they're clustered in yes. the province of Asia. Asia yeah, yeah, Asia Minor is... Modern day Turkey, Asia is a province of the Roman Empire, which is in Western Asia Minor. So this is like pretty close to the coast over there, yeah. and they're pretty clustered close to each other. Um, I don't know like how far away they were in terms of mileage, but that's easy to look up. But I know a lot of tours, you know, if you go to Turkey, they'll take mm-hmm. you to all these different mm-hmm. locations because they're pretty close to each other. But uh, so that's one way you can look at it, is purely historical. And that appeals to a lot of interpreters, especially uh, dispensationalist friends that I know and commentators that I've read, they don't want to see in this any more than necessary. Let's just stick with the plain sense of the text. These are just churches in Western Turkey. And that's absolutely true. But there are others who would say, well, maybe there's more to it than just that. Okay. So the second view, and and I would say that none of these views are exclusive necessarily uh, in the sense that you can combine them. But uh, other people would emphasize this is more typical. Like, why are seven churches in particular chosen? Why just these churches? Is it just because John knew these churches? Or is it because these churches represent different types of churches? So others would say that since Revelation is consummating things, it's bringing it all together, that the whole church is being envisioned with these seven churches. They're the complete church, the complete body. But the body of Christ obviously isn't the same. You have different expressions of the body of Christ. Okay. There, there are different ways the bride looks depending on the context. And so these seven churches would be different aspects, potential aspects of the body. So you can look like this, or you can look like that. And you have seven examples, which gets everybody in there. So every church, every congregation would fit more or less into one of these. And of course, even within each congregation, it would be argued that you can have a combination. Like you can have people inside a congregation that are lukewarm, you know, but in general, congregations are characterized certain ways. And so they would argue for a typical view. Again, the word typical here isn't how we normally use it. Each church would be a type of, you know, different kinds of churches in general. The third view is the prophetic view. And it would say that these churches are chosen because they represent successive ages. Mm-hmm. So since Revelation is a prophetic book, there's a lot going for this view. It kind of makes sense. And so... Each church, step by step, takes you closer to the rapture in terms of what it represents. So, yes, these are actual churches. Like, I mean, they all exist at the same time. But Mm -hmm. the way they're laid out and explained, if you look at them in order, they seem to fit a general chronology of church history. Now, we can see that. We can appreciate it because of the time we live in. Um, At the time that it was originally written, maybe they wouldn't have picked up on that. But we are able to look back with the benefit of history and say, hey, this kind of fits each age of the church. So we have the seven different ages that we'll look at, uh, but this particular church, Ephesus, would represent the time period, of course, that the letter's being written in. So it would represent the late first century, but it would extend on until or in, into the second century. And as we'll read it, you'll see that the second century was characterized by a lot of doctrinal uh, heretical groups. Mm-hmm who were rising up and were trying to move into the church and undermine it. They were writing false gospels. And so that was the main battle 
was within the church, these different groups. And the biggest group that was the challenge was Gnostics. So there were other groups, but Gnostics were the biggest. There were lots of different types of Gnostics, but in general, that was the huge group that the church was battling with. So as we read this, when we talk about the Nicolaitans, that's definitely something we're going to discuss because they appear to be what you call proto-Gnostic or like early Gnostic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we have these same people written about in the days of Irenaeus. Irenaeus knew Polycarp, Polycarp knew John. So he's a little bit down the road. He's writing towards the end of the second century. So about a hundred years after this was written, but he's still dealing with the same people. Right. Uh, but then when you move on into the next church, uh, which is Smyrna, that church appears to represent that next age. So after the church dealt with this initial threat of heresy, the next really big challenge, and they were dealing with it in the time of John's day somewhat. I mean, they'd already had Nero's persecution. Domitian was persecuting Christians, but the worst persecutions of the Roman empire came to a head in the second uh, or sorry, the third century, the two right. hundreds. That's when the worst persecutions took place. The Decian persecution where, I mean, Christianity was universally outlawed. Christians were, all of them, were forced to come and to offer incense to the emperor. And if they didn't do it, then they would be imprisoned or worse, killed. Uh, Thrown to the lions. Yes, bo- uh, the Christian writings were to be gathered up and burned. It was a lot more intense. What's so while... What's the, what's the martyr, the, the, the girl, the woman? Perpetua. Perpetua. I don't remember what when, time period she lived that? in, but she may have been during that <laughs> like time. Two yeah. to 300. There yeah. you go. So that was the worst time of the church. Uh, like I said, Nero, his persecution took place, but it was more of like a temporary thing. He needed a scapegoat. I personally think that Nero uh, burnt down Rome because he was crazy. There's different opinions about that, but he needed somebody to blame. Christians were there, right? So it, it was a terrible persecution, but it, it wasn't uh, as widespread as later persecutions. Mm. And so anyways, we see it becoming more intense. And I think that is what we find when we read about Smyrna. And then we move on to the next church, uh, Pergamum or Pergamus, depending on the translation you have. And that seems to be the church that sees the marriage of the, the, the church and the state. So mm. they come together under Constantine. So now we're talking 300. So again, you see this succession. And so that's very compelling to me. And I know a lot of dispensationalists, when you read their writings, they're a little hesitant to get on board with it because yeah. they don't want to t- detract from the historical setting. Okay. In hermeneutics, it's called the historical grammatical approach. So this is being written to seven real churches in the first century that John was aware of. Yeah. But at the same time, you're reading these writers and it's like, they know that there's more here. They're, they're so uh, convinced that this fits that pattern of different ages of the church that They'll say, well, we can't be dogmatic, but it does seem pretty compelling. And I would agree with them. So uh, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it because it doesn't get spelled out in Scripture. Jesus doesn't say, hey, each one of these churches represents a a successive age in church history. But it does look like it. And so I think that that's very reasonable. If you hear a baby grunting in the background, that's Jasher. And he's he's just contributing in his own way. (laughs) He mad, bro. And so the last view is what I think is probably the best view. And it's the view that I hold. It's just the all of the above view. Like, absolutely, these are historical churches. Can't deny it. Absolutely, they represent different kinds of churches. And absolutely, I believe, personally, that they do represent different periods of the church. So you take that all together, and I think that uh, it makes sense. Right. And at the same time, we have all of these churches 
today. Yes, again, and so there's right. no denial about right, that. Yeah. It's just that as far as the church in general, different, no, yeah, 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 different periods are characterized by yeah, these yeah. different churches. So yeah, but I do believe there are some congregations that are in China right now, oh. um, and they are the they're the Philadelphian Church. They are you know sending missionaries to us, and they're the Smyrna Church because they're being persecuted by the government. So we do see all these coexisting. I don't deny that. And again, that would be the typical view. That would be like, these are different types of churches and they coexist. But uh, it does seem to be that there, there's this general character for each period. And we could go on, we could talk about Thyatira after Pergamos. Uh, Thyatira seems to be the middle ages. Mm. So there's a lot of Mary worship that maybe even suggested in the text. Right. Um, a, A lot of, a lot of blending paganism with mm. Christianity becomes something like a syncretistic. And, and we do see, okay, if you're Catholic and you're listening to this, this isn't meant to offend you, but we, we do see within the Catholic church, some practices that can be traced to paganism. And so we see yes. that when Constantine said, Hey, Christianity is legal. And then he, you know, converted himself and became an advocate or ambassador for Christianity. We start to see a lot of blending. Okay. A lot of compromise takes place and Thyatira would represent like the dark ages. Mm-hmm. The church was, Honestly, very dark, very ritualistic, uh, pretty lifeless spiritually. It still mm. existed, though. I mean, they were true believers during that time, or else he wouldn't refer to Thyatira as a real church. Right. Uh, but we do we do see uh, a lot of compromise during that time. And then you have Sardis, and Sardis is the Reformation for sure. Like, I mean, yeah, they have a name that they're alive, and uh, they, they've done a good job in a sense of purifying doctrinal heresy, you know, coming back to some ideas that are biblical and that have been lost mm-hmm. or have been, you know, ignored during the Middle Ages. You know, sola scriptura, sola fide, all that yes. stuff. But they became so obsessed with doctrine that we don't see a whole lot of mission. We don't see a whole lot of evangelism. During that period, there was so much nitpicking over creeds and and doctrinal discussion that they couldn't really get unified. They didn't know exactly what they believed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it was like, you know, there was a lot of pointing. You're a heretic. You're a heretic. Like during this time, there was the Arminian Calvinist controversy. And I mean, while they're debating, like, who's the heretic? Right. they, They could have been saying, hey, let's unify on what what we do agree on and let's send people to these countries and share right. the gospel. But it was more like, you're the heretic. Let's burn oh, these people the at the stake. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that was what was going on. And then we see in the 1700s, a, a shift, like God puts it on people's hearts, like William Carey and others. Like we need to start, stop debating all this stuff. And, and this was like, even William Carey's like, I'm a Calvinist guys, but we need to go take the gospel. So it's like, you know, we can disagree on certain things, but we agree on Jesus and people need him. And so let's go. And so we see that fervor starting to come about. That's the Philadelphian church. And then, of yes. course, you know, we're, I would argue, in the Laodicean period. Uh, we're seeing the same church that was on fire, like Europe, okay? Europe, America, you know, as an extension of Europe. We were sending missionaries everywhere. I mean, that's where the Reformation happened. I mean, that's Absolutely. that's where Christendom was. And, and there was a time where that was the center of Christianity in the mm-hmm. world. And we're look at Europe now. Me and Katie were talking about the other day, like all these churches over there, lifeless. It's like, hubs. Yeah, you just go there and you visit. It's beautiful. Oh, look at this architecture. It's nice. But I mean, you know. Well, a lot of them they made into bars. That too. Yeah. I yeah, mean, but it's. The old ones, yeah. You, you've taken ones. this beautiful legacy that you ought to have. You ought to have taken and passed it on and Canada. you keep it going, but it's been completely thrown by the wayside. So I almost uh, bought a church once. What's that now? So I almost bought a church. We were actually looking at buying a church in Canada, like to live in. There was that one for sale up 
But it's, it's so sad, especially though, because I mean, there are a lot of churches around here that may not look very much like a church. Like you could repurpose it, I guess. But there, there were, there's just so many churches over there in Europe. It's like, man, these were beautifully built yeah, yeah. and dedicated for a sacred purpose. You know, even if you disagree with the theology of the people, maybe who met in it, like it was, it was a symbol of Christianity. Yeah. And, and, and you can see that that symbol, the way it's being used now and treated now, it reflects on the way people regard Christianity yes. in general. So that, okay, that's our hermeneutical approach. Now, the first big question that comes to mind, and this is something we touched on Sunday, is the angel. So we talked about this at the very last bit. I spent maybe five minutes talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty big issue in, in that lots of different opinions revolve around who is the angel. Uh, most people are divided into two main camps. Uh, conservative scholars, as far as I've found in reading, are either they're angels. So like people like Henry Morris, uh, I really respect his commentary in Revelation. He's like, plain sense, they're angels. Right. If you look at the rest of the book, it's like angels, angels, angels are supernatural beings, so they're angels here. But then you have other people who I respect just as much, and they say, well, these angels are a part of the congregation. So when they're addressed to the angels, it's not like, okay, hey, uh, we're addressing this to the church through the angel. The angel's just like a courier somehow involved in sending a message. No, the angels are actually part of it, and so they they participate in receiving either the commendation or the rebuke. And since the angels, in some cases, do receive a rebuke, mm. that implies that the angels have sinned, which again implies that the angel is not a holy angel in heaven, which they don't right. sin, you know, unless they're fallen. So we couldn't say they were holy in that case. So this seems to be uh, identifying the text as it identifies the angel with the church. It talks to the angel, talks to the church as if they're the same somehow. Uh, so other people would say, well, the better view then would be pastors. So the pastors are part of the congregation, right? But they are representative of it. And so we can kind of make sense, sense of it a little bit. You could talk to the pastor. <clears throat> you could talk to the church at the same time interchangeably. <clears throat> that view is good, I think. But um, again, the way that if you read through these letters, just sit down and read them in one setting, it wouldn't take very long. It's really hard for me to reconcile the idea that this is being addressed primarily to the leadership. It seems to be addressed to the congregation. Yeah. Um, if it was addressed to the leader, I can imagine him talking to them just like he talked or like Paul talked to the Ephesian elders. Like he addressed them as shepherds of the flock, right? So he's talking to them as leaders. But when you're reading to this, he doesn't talk to them as leaders, really. Right. He talks to them as a group as a church. So again, to limit it to the pastors, I think they're involved, but to limit it to them just seems to go beyond the plain sense here, which extends the whole rebuke or the whole commendation to the entire church. So that leaves you with a couple of views that um, I'll share with you. Um, so John Nelson Darby, he's considered, some people call him like the father of the pre-trib rapture. I don't see him that way. I think he's the the first one perhaps to distinctively um, not necessarily define it, but to systematize it and to argue for it really eloquently and to make a big deal about it, I guess. But um, Darby argues that whenever it talks to the angel, it's talking not to the pastor alone. It's talking to anybody who takes responsibility for the church. So basically whenever he talks to the angel, he's talking to, people like in verse seven, where he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit say to the churches. So he's talking to anybody 
who shares responsibility for the church. So this would include the pastor, but it would be anybody else, you know, who is a member of the church and concerned about the, the health of it, the state of it, or who has something they can do about it. Um, he seems to emphasize, though, and I don't agree with him on this. He seems to emphasize that the stars of the angels represent like believers in fellowship, like believers who are in close communion with God. So really, when God's saying these things, he's writing specifically to the people who are in close communion with him. And I obviously think the people who are in close communion with him are going to be the ones who probably listen to him. Right. Um, but I would disagree that he's writing just to them, because if you get to the church of Laodicea, they're not really concerned with God's will very much. <laughs> they're not in communion with him. They're inside. Jesus is on the outside knocking to get in. So this seems to be a little too narrow based on the text. So I would say that Darby's close, but I think it would be more reasonable just to say that when it refers to the angel, it's collectively referring to anybody in the church, period. Anybody who really is a member of the church, that they're saved and they're part of this local assembly, they're being addressed. An angel is, um, I mean, he could say the angels, okay? However, angel shouldn't surprise us either because the bride, for example, um, in scripture, he doesn't refer to the brides. He refers to the bride. It gets everybody in there. Like the bride is made up of many. Uh, same thing with the body. He doesn't refer to the bodies. He refers to the body. So to have... You know, being singular would just emphasize that everybody's part of one body, one group. But of course, that group's made up of individuals, and he does address individuals in the text. So um, the view that I think argues that fairly well is a guy named Meyer, and he's a commentator who lived back in the 1800s. And he basically says that whenever John is writing, whenever the Lord is addressing the churches, he's just taking everybody in that congregation, and he's addressing them as one person. Like angel is just everybody in there, get them all in there. And I think that's probably reasonable. So angel meaning messenger would mean every person in that church has a sacred, holy calling to be a messenger of God's will to the world. And that would be in words and in actions as well. Uh, okay. So that's who the angel is. Now, the next big question and this one, I find really interesting and one that I never really gave a whole lot of time to. And that is what is the first love? It says here that he has something against them. So even though they have good works, they labor well, they're patient, you can't bear with them what you're evil. You know, they've been refuting those who claim to be apostles and aren't. He he does say in verse number four that he has something against him because they left their first love. And so what does it mean that they left their first love? Uh, well, since he's talking to the Ephesians, I think we would be remiss if we didn't go to the book of Ephesians and look at something that was said to the same congregation earlier, and they don't have the same problem. When Paul writes to them, uh, at least as far as we can tell in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, he says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And so the, the Ephesian congregation is continuing to obey God, but they're not walking in love as they ought to. Now, what is exactly does that mean? Well, they obviously love God enough to be faithful by refuting the false teachers and dealing with those problems as they arose. But first love, I think here, means that they were missing out 
or losing their first love means they were missing out on the initial enthusiasm that they once had. Christians can become disenchanted. Christians can lose their enthusiasm. We can harden our hearts somewhat. And, and the hardening of our hearts may not be something that we perceive as outrightly rebellious. It's really easy for us whenever we see opposition around us to be hardened by that. I think about how crazy it's getting, especially with transgenderism here in the States. And we see it coming to our schools. We see our kids being victimized by it. And what does that do? It makes us angry. Now, we could be commended for our response to it in that we recognize that this is evil and we do our best to guard against it. Okay, so churches that are doing that, I think that Christ would say the same thing to us as he says here to the Ephesians. You're worthy of being commended on that part, but you've lost your first love. And as I was reading all these commentators, I think that they hit on something really insightful. Again, something that, you know, once you see it, you're like, how did I miss that? Whenever you are dealing with opposition, whenever you're dealing with a rise in evil, it is really easy to forget the love that God has shown you. Yeah. And you could start to take it for granted. You could start to think, I am the defender of truth. Yeah. And you forget that once you were blind, I am a saint of God, but I was once a sinner. You kind of forget that. And so you start to put people outside the church and put them further beyond God's grace in yeah. your mind. You know, it's, it's, yes, they are outside the church. You know, yes, these people are doing evil things, but... God loves them and wants them Just to be with you, right? And, and yeah, you were brought in, yep. weren't you? Yep. So I think that they had they gotten so zealous that they were starting to forget the love that they ought to have for Christ, of course, um, and the love that they ought to have for other people. So why were they doing this? I think that there are a lot of instances where people can be very enthusiastic. I'll yeah. read a verse that I've read many times that I think illustrates all this fairly well. And it's in Hebrews 10, 32. It's one of those verses I go back to a lot. Whoever's writing Hebrews, <laughs> um, he says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. So when, when they first got started out, they were very excited and they were happy to serve. And that involved, in their case, sacrifice. Mm -hmm. But they were willing to make it because they were full of the love of the Lord. I think that that is perhaps what John is referring to, what Jesus is referring to here as the first love. Like, remember when you first got saved, how, how much you love God and how excited you were because you had received God's grace. You were outside, you were brought inside. And that was a love that you wanted to share with other people. But over time, as you've become involved in this battle, you've kind of hardened your heart, just as soldiers kind of have to, you know, you kind of have to shut out stuff. And, you know, sometimes you have to have your emotions seared, you know, in order to do the job and they were doing their job. And he was like, I can. I honor the work that you're doing for me, but if you keep going this route, you're going to forget why you're doing it in the first place. And so it's really easy for us to do that. Mm. Uh, we have to be careful 
uh, whenever we are responding to heresy, whenever we're responding to evil in the world, that we don't lose our love for those people. And that's a hard thing to do because yeah. it's like, how can you be so vehement, but yet at the same time, want those person to come to faith? Uh, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I, I've listened to people. I've listened, listened to podcasters and talk show people and the way that they slam the opposition and they insult them and they, they mock them. them. They, yeah. And it's like, I, I agree that they're, they're a danger. Like this is a threat for sure, but these are lost souls and they're right. blinded by the true enemy and you're forgetting who the true enemy is. And whenever you start seeing people wishing like I, you know, that person's in hell and I'm glad it's like, mm, Ooh, God. That's awful. And, and it's like, I feel like maybe the, maybe the Ephesians hadn't got that far perhaps, but they were getting hardened like that. And when they were refusing to let these apostles in, they were starting, like you just said, Christy, to, to dehumanize them and to lose their love. Um, the rebuke that they were giving to these people, which hopefully would lead to repentance, uh, that's the kind of perspective that they were losing, to see these people repent. Um, so anyways, I think that that's possibly what's being referred to here. Uh, now, the next big question is, who in the world are the Nicolaitans? Because those are the people that they're dealing with. That's the conflict right now. So who are the Nicolaitans? Well, there are three different clues. No one really knows for sure. <laughs> mm. So you're looking at all these researchers, like there's no easy answer to the question. I've been, I've been told that they were a group of people that set up a hierarchy over the people. Well, they, they do have a name and that's, it's good that you mentioned that they do have a name, which in, in Greek, when you break it down, it means conquer people. Um, and, and no doubt they were involved in oppressing people because they were like very pretentious and self-righteous. And this probably was a Gnostic group, the super apostles. Paul dealt with them. He talks about them in his letters uh, to the Corinthians, second Corinthians in particular. So these super apostles were definitely putting people down like, oh, no, you don't know. You poor souls. You don't know. You mm. don't have the knowledge that we have. So, yes, I agree with that. Some people think that this is like a hierarchy in terms of clergy and laity. That's, I don't, that's what I was I, I don't. I think that uh, that certainly happened. And maybe that was starting to happen during this time. But I think that this is a heretical group. I don't think it's a group of people who are doctrinally sound, but yet they're just trying to restructure the church. Uh, we're going to talk about how the church was restructured in a second because it started out uh, as laity driven, but it became more bishop centered for a good reason. But it's like, when again, whenever you're responding to opposition, you can take it too far. I'll explain that in a minute. But as far as the Nicolaitans, some people think that it was more of a clergy lady thing. Tim LaHaye makes that argument in his book. But um, it seems that most, most researchers will point out at least the historical data first. And that is, these people are mentioned by Irenaeus. Irenaeus, again, he's very close to the writing of Revelation. So he's writing in like 180 AD. Okay, so... Uh, pretty close. He has a connection with John through Polycarp. So he wasn't especially close to Polycarp as far as we know, but he did hear him teach. Okay. So he's not too far removed from that generation. Whenever you get close to that time period, uh, you have to at the very least say, well, maybe they're not right. You can, you know, even within a hundred years, you know, things can get lost, but that information is going to have probably precedent mm -hmm. because you're so close. So what did he say about him? Well, Nickel, uh, Irenaeus said that the Nicolaitans came from a guy named Nicholas of Antioch or Nicolaus of Antioch. Not uh, St. Nicholas. Not St. Nicholas. This would be another guy who is mentioned in Acts 
as one of the deacons that was chosen uh, by the church. And so mm. whenever the apostle said, y'all pick some men right. to be deacons, Nicolaus or Nicholas was one of these guys. Now, there's a whole story attributed to him later on. Uh, I don't know if this story is true, but it appears that even if Nicholas wasn't a heretic himself, there was a group of people that used him as, as like their founding father. And so that means I'm, I'm very hesitant to say Nicolaus uh, was a heretic himself because we don't have like proof of that. Proof, yeah. uh, but we do have other examples from history. Like, for example, uh, you have Nestorius. Nestorius was a guy who reacted to a growing uh, problem in his day, and it was a worship of Mary. Mm. Okay. People were calling her the like the God bearer. Mm-hmm. The mother of God. He's like, well, guys, she only bore his human nature. Right. And mm-hmm. oh, how did they res- I would agree with him. And how would they respond to that? Are you separating the persons of G? Are you saying there are two Jesuses, a divine Jesus and a human Jesus? Mm-hmm. Because we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's one person. And so we always have the enemies, right? The enemies, it, it, they're the ones who are telling us what these people believed. If we could just sit down to stories and say, what do you actually believe? I feel like the Nestorians that came later who did believe there were two persons, they believe there's a human person and a divine person. Then uh, that's wrong. I mean, Jesus yeah. is one person, not two. But did Nestorius actually teach that? A number of historians say he probably did. Okay, he mm. probably got caught up in this debate um, and people started a- attaching to him views that he never held. So it's possible the same thing is with Nicolaus. But what did Nicola- What did the Nicolaitans believe according to Irenaeus? Apparently they were very uh, lewd and they were encouraging people to indulge in sexual immorality, uh, to eat food offered to idols. And not just eat food offered to idols. Uh, one might say, well, you know, even Paul said, well, as long as you're not participating in the idol worship and as long as you're not offending a weaker brother, right, it'd be okay. But not like participate in idol feasts. Like, so the Nicolaitans were saying like, it's okay. Indulge in the idol feast, you know, party, you know, it basically sin as much as you want, sin to your heart's content. And apparently they were trying to use Paul's words. Uh, for example, the text that we'll look at is uh, Romans five, uh, 20 through chapter six. And here Paul talks about how, since we're saved by grace, uh, we don't have a reason to sin. We have a reason to obey, right? Wait, you said Romans 5? Romans, Romans 5, yeah. Romans 5, uh, 20. Uh, Paul says this. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. That is, sin hath reigned unto death. Even so, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what Paul was saying is, yes, salvation's completely free. I'm not going to downplay that. I mean, he argues it throughout the whole book. Salvation's free. Salvation's free. It's not of works. However, when someone says to themselves, I've been saved by grace, the next thing that they do is they think, thank you, God. 
thank you. I thank you for giving me love. And in that love, their next natural reaction is not, hey, I'm going to go sin as much as I want. It's no, right. their next natural reaction is the Lord wants something from me and I want to give it to him. There's a struggle there. I mean, we, we don't always live up to that. Mm. We don't show our appreciation as we should always, but there is that desire there. So what these Nicolaitans apparently were doing was perverting and twisting mm -hmm. that doctrine. And they were taking it to say, like, you know, now that Jesus has died, like, sin doesn't even matter anymore as sin doesn't matter. And that's not what anybody in the new Testament taught. But we see uh, some of that in the free grace movement. Well, there, mm. there, well, I would say that some people like the hyper grace, um, they would take it further than they ought to. But even in the hyper grace camp, I don't think they would say that sin ceases to be sin. When you get saved, they would still say it's sin. They would just say there's no judgment for it. And I would disagree with them on that. Mm. I would say, no, there is divine discipline on sin. They would say, oh, well, our sins have been forgotten. Our sins have been removed. And they don't like the idea of being judged at all for anything, even if it's just chastisement. So that's the hyper grace movement. Uh, I, I don't know of anybody today, uh, evangelical wise, that would say sin isn't sin anymore because that's what Gnostics were basically doing. They were saying mm. that your spirit and your flesh are so separate from each other um, that your spirit and your flesh have no correlation. So you can be spiritually healthy and you can indulge in sin. So if you go over here and you sleep with harlots and you, you know, you know, party in the temple that doesn't reflect upon your spirit. So what that seems to be doing is taking true doctrine, which was taught back then, which is like you're washed. And mm. if you're washed, then you're eternally secure. They took that and they used it to encourage sin while that same doctrine was used by the apostles to discourage sin. So they would basically be saying like, you know, what you do in the flesh just doesn't matter. And what the Bible teaches is it does matter. And that if you've been saved, um, you've been given a new nature and that new nature is meant to be lived out in your life practically. You, know, you need to stop, you know, participating in these idols because these idols are false gods and you need to not indulge in sexual immorality because that's sinful in the eyes of the Lord who bought you with a price. And so um, I don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans taught. No one really does. Okay. So mm. they appear to be very similar to Gnostics. Now, if they were similar to Gnostics, that probably means that what they believed about Jesus was heretical. Mm. Um, they probably didn't believe the same thing about Jesus that we do. We could safely put them, I would say, in a camp like the Mormons who um, maybe they divorced the spirit from the flesh and they'd said, well, Jesus never had the flesh. Maybe they said that there were some Gnostics who believed it, by the way, that Jesus never really became a man. Others denied that Jesus was really God. They would say that it's like the spirit, the, the Christ spirit came upon him and then left him. So either way, Gnostics, even though they had a diversity of beliefs, generally speaking, they were heretical when it came to their views of Christ. So I, these people were not those who were like, yeah, Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. He paid for my sins on the cross. He rose again. You know, he's heaven today as the high priest. There were a lot of, um, there were a lot of attempts in the second century to take paganism and to mix it with Christianity. They did this with Judaism. Okay. So in the old Testament, they had the same problem. Gnostics are just a, a Christian version. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in the old Testament, you had people who would say like the Samaritans, oh yeah, we worship Yahweh. Sure. Yeah. But we got all these other gods too. Yeah. And you have people like Balaam. And the reason I mentioned Balaam is because he's mentioned here um, in Revelation. Let's find right. the verse. I got it somewhere. Uh, contextual 
here's my note right here. So in Revelation 2, 14, yeah. it mentions Balaam, and he is explained as a key illustration for the Nicolaitans. And so in Revelation 2, 14, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there, there to hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So it appears that we're not talking about two separate things, that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is, in some form, the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, worship another god. Whenever Balaam made the people sin, or, or you know, tempted them to sin, they were worshiping Baal. Okay, so they were offering gods to Baal. So apparently the Nicolaitans were coming into the church and they weren't denying certain things about Christianity. They wouldn't deny that Jesus was the Messiah and stuff like that, but they'd redefine terms and, and they would try to take Christianity and mix it with paganism. So there are people like that today, you know, who will, who pick and choose. I've talked to students who it's like, yeah, like I'm a Christian, but I don't see why other religions can't be true too. And I'm like, so what's going on in your so, mind? Okay. I don't yeah. understand how that works. How is there this disconnect there? Jesus is pretty exclusive. If you read the Bible, all right, if you read the Bible, then you can't take Christianity. You can't mix it with all these mm -hmm. other religions. They don't fit. But there are people who, because they haven't really committed themselves to the authority of God's word, they have no problem regarding Christianity and other religions as being some part of, you know, this whole tapestry. You just put it all in there, you know? Yes. And so Balaam believed that the Nicolaitans believed that. I think these were people who probably um, would come into the church and be like, oh, yeah, we don't have a problem with Jesus. We don't got a problem yeah. with Jesus. Yes, Jesus was a great man. We, we've heard about all the miracles he's done. We think Jesus was even enlightened. He yeah. was a Messiah. Yeah, we won't even deny that. Like Hindus. Hindus yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I think exactly that right. they would, the Gnostics were pretty pagan in that, in yeah. that regard. So they would, they'd probably have no problem talking of Jesus. And then that might make a lot of Christians let their guard down and say, oh, okay. And then they would take things very slyly, just like the devil does, and take things like eternal security and grace through faith and twist those two and use those to get these people like, oh, well, if you're saved, then, you know, you, you're free now from sin. So that means you can go over here and you can worship idols and party and you can participate yeah. in all of these sexual things, you know, and, you know, you, you know, you want to do it and you can do it because you're free in Christ now. That's not what freedom in Christ means. You know, it, mm. it doesn't mean we have an excuse to sin. It means we have an excuse to obey. But that's the sort of thing that I think the Nicolaitans taught and what most people uh, tend to think they believe. So you have those three things. You have the historical data we looked at. You have the grammar means conquer people. That's what they were doing. They were plundering the church by going in here and taking these people. And, and because they're referred to as angels, the churches are, and the people are depicted as those stars in their right hand. Um, we know that eternal security is being affirmed here. John's already said in, you know, John chapter 10, you're in my hand, no one can pluck them out. But um, he does mention that the candlestick can be removed. Okay. He mentions that. And he mm. does talk about all those that I love, I chase. And he mentions that to the Laodiceans. So there's discipline that can't take place. And he's warning them that it will take place. Mm. Um, and the Nicolaitans were definitely plaguing this area. And so they will continue to for many generations until even Irenaeus a mm. hundred years later was dealing with them. Okay. So uh, they called them the Nicolaitans because um, maybe that's their name for them. Maybe they called them that sort of like Nimrod means uh, rebel. I don't, yeah, yeah. it's possible that he was named that at birth. It could be prophetic right. uh, or it could be that he was named that because of his rebellious activity at the tower of Babel. But either way, the point is, 
they lived up to their name. They were conquering the people. So the technical um, title for this group would be antinomian Gnostics. They were anti-law, against the law. <coughs> Excuse me. And we as Christians, as free grace people, we have to properly understand that while, yes, if you sin, hypothetically, okay, whatever sin, if you're really saved, you're saved. However, just because someone can do something hypothetically in some world doesn't mean that they will. <clears throat> and it certainly doesn't mean that they should. And so for me as a Christian, grace is never, and Paul would say the same thing if he was here. John would say the same thing. Jesus would say the same thing. Grace never motivates sin ever. Right. You have to push grace aside and ignore it. Because if you do sin, whenever you're thinking about the love God's shown you, you're going to feel bad and you're not going to enjoy your sin. Exactly. So it appears that these Nicolaitans were not the ones who at least were, who were coming into the churches and taking these people captive. It appears that they were not believers. If they had never at some point recognized the grace of God in its true nature and believed it and had that, that desire, that love for God, then... Uh, I can't say, I can't imagine that these people would be real believers. However, whenever the Nicolaitans came in, they were holding out that forbidden fruit to Christians. And it could be that a lot of these Christians maybe had come out of that lifestyle not too long before either. Like, oh, and great. so go back to it's it. really easy to go back yeah. to it. And so would they have had the Holy Spirit convicting them and drawing them away from that? Of course they would have. But we all know that, you know, the allure of sin is strong. And uh, many Christians have fallen into it uh, and discipline will be the result. So again, the hyper grace movement is completely false. The idea that there's no discipline, that we're not going to have to answer for our deeds at the judgment seat of Christ. The people who try to deny that they're wrong. They need right? to read their Bible. They need to read their Bible. Absolutely. Uh, so people will even take something as beautiful and as true as free grace and they'll twist it and pervert it. All right. And so the, the next thing that uh, we could talk about, and we're not going to talk about it, because uh, there's one more thing I want to mention, and then we'll stop there. <clears throat> but the next thing that we'll talk about next week, I suppose, will be what is an overcomer? I know we've talked about that before uh, at some point in the past, but uh, it's possible we have people who are listening to our podcast and they haven't heard that. And since we're going through Revelation, we can't avoid it. It's pretty key mm. again and again. It mentions in every letter, overcomer, overcomer, overcomer. So we're going to talk about what an overcomer is next time. But the last thing I want to mention before we wrap it up is. In the case of the Ephesians, who were doing a good job refuting this antinomianism, this Gnosticism, mm. I, I have an opinion. This is just an opinion, okay? So speculation. But we notice if you read the church fathers like I have, there is a tendency to go into the lordship and works-based camp. Um, why do they emphasize works so much? Um, I don't necessarily think it was because of Jewish roots. Maybe early on it was, but the Gentile church, you know, that had Paul's letters and he emphasizes grace more than anybody. Um, yeah, they, James, huh? James, the book of James, uh -huh. his letter is, is very much saying about works. works. Yeah. It's confusing. Yes. And I think that, uh, but I think that that confusion, I would argue personally that when they had the apostles there, they explained what they meant and people yeah. got it right. But over time, when you don't have the benefit of those people, sages, prophets who are yeah. sitting there telling you what it means, 
And that's why we have to say, what did Paul mean here? You know, we don't have Paul here, right? We, have, we pray through the Holy Spirit. We try to do our best to plainly and honestly uh, read Scripture. But sometimes, you know, we mess up and we get to heaven. God's going to set us straight on some things, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, at this time in the early church when the apostles died, and they were dealing with stuff like the Nicolaitans, like Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, about 80 years, 90 years removed from Apostle John's death. There's a lot of tendency to read their writings and to just be works, works, works. Like, you know, and there doesn't seem to me to be as much grace. And I think that what that indicates is the Ephesians didn't, at least not um, long term. They didn't go back to their first love. Mm. What they did is they overreacted and they went too far in their opposition to heresy. It's like people today, when they see Christians sinning, we can, we can easily go too far in our rebuttal. So you can say, look, that is wrong. Jesus saved you from hell. Okay. And if you keep persisting in this sin, he's going to chastise you and you're going to have to answer before him one day. That is a biblical rebuke. You can go too far in your rebuke and say, you're going to hell. That's what I'm saying. Those people, that one family, they're in Kansas or something, and they would. Westboro Baptist Church. God hates gays. What is it? Westboro Baptist. Westboro. I mean, you can go too far and you can say, look, you're not really saved. You're not really saved and you got to persevere. You got to take up your cross. And I can't believe that you're doing something like that. How could a real Christian shack up with another Christian? Okay. Or, or a non-believer. How could you, you know, fornicate, you know, and how how could you leave your husband? Yeah. I mean, and we could list so many other things, but it's like, okay, well, you Christian shouldn't, Christian shouldn't fornicate. (laughs) It's, It's a sin, right? But if this person has received Jesus as their savior, it's, you haven't lost your salvation. Right. Um, and there were some church fathers who would say, yeah, they have. And so I think that what happened is because they were dealing with people who were taking beautiful doctrines, the devil likes to take the most beautiful doctrines and twist yeah. them. And the devil got a hold of grace. He got a hold of eternal security and he twisted it. And he was the one who said, well, if you, if you believe in eternal security, you can just sin all you want. And he took that and he, he twisted it so much so that even today you hear people making yeah. the same accusation whenever a person says, look, Jesus has got you and he's not going to let you go. And they think, well, you, you'll, you can just do whatever you want to now. And I'm like, but why would any Christian think that? Mm. When, when they're thinking about the goodness of the Lord, why would they reach that conclusion? They wouldn't if they're actually trusted in grace. It's whenever, like I said earlier, whenever you ignore it or it's not at the forefront of your mind that you begin to slip Mm -hmm. and you start to, you know, fall into temptation. But we see people using that same accusation today. And I I think that that was probably, that was probably a danger. I think that Jesus was saying to him, look, what they're doing, what these people are saying is heresy, but be careful that you don't end up forgetting grace and love in your response to them. And so that's a tough, it's a hard one. It's a hard one. And I, I think that's why God was very, um, I think he was stern, but uh, I don't think his strongest rebuke was for the Ephesians. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's easy for someone to commit that kind of error, but it's an error all the same. Yeah. And so we have to be careful. We don't do that ourselves. And one final example of this, and I mentioned that I'd, I'd touch on it. Um, so we talked about how the Nicolaitans, according to some people were clergy oppressing the laity. Well, when did it all come about to have bishops like that? 
you know, like these super powerful bishops. It appears to have been after John died, uh, you have people who may have known John. There's good reason to believe that Ignatius of Antioch knew John. And if you read his letters, he distinguishes between presbyters or elders and bishops. And the bishops are basically a super pastor in one town mm. who is a pastor over other bishops uh, or other uh, pastors. rather. And so at this time, it doesn't appear to be that these people were like Catholic in their understanding, like apostolic succession or anything like that. The reason that they had this system is because Ignatius saw all this heresy and he mm. saw Christians who were ignorant or weak in their faith being captured by it. And so he said the best way to fight against that is to appoint in a city a really, really strong, unifying bishop. Right. And this person is above reproach, no sound doctrine, and he will watch all these pastors and be darn sure that they don't start slipping up in teaching false doctrine or allowing these people in their groups uh, like the Nicolaitans, like the Gnostics. And so I can be like, I can even imagine being back then myself and saying, like, I can understand the reason behind that. I can see that I can. But what that turned into again, it's like at first you can see the good motivation, but eventually it went so far to where now the the laity, the church itself has no autonomy. Mm-hmm. They have no choice, no say. And it's the bishop who's in charge. And the bishop is becomes the sole arbiter of truth until you get in the Middle Ages and people in the church don't even read their Bibles. Right. They're just spoon fed, whatever the bishop says and the bishop, if he's spoon feeding them heresy, that's all they get. And so you're like, well, that's not what God designed at all. Mm. And so you could see how the God's original design was. There were uh, many elders because there were many congregations in the city and the congregations, they appointed their elders. Uh, I mean, even when apostles went to places and they would appoint or uh, rather say nominate people, it even says that the congregations would vote by raising of hand. They would affirm it. You know, they, I mean, the Paul didn't have to say, you know, hey, are you, do you all agree that this man is chosen mm-hmm. by God? But he did because he was get, letting them know that this is something that they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, churches have that that authority and they need to learn how to use it properly. Uh, he was encouraging that. And so there would be a time where rather than Paul having his agents, and that sounds maybe negative, but not negative. People like Timothy and Titus who would oversee. They were sort of like bishops. Okay. But they were granted authority by Paul. He's like, you're like me, except I'm not there. So you had that apostolic commission. So that was a transitionary period. But uh, it appears that Ignatius and others like him, they tried to keep that going, but they kept it going. I I really think we can give them a break. They kept it going for a good reason. They really wanted to make sure heresy didn't raise up um, its ugly head. And eventually people took that and they used it as a way to propagate their own power and, and, you know, enrich themselves at the expense of other people. And, and we know how that went. That's middle ages, right? Change. Yeah. Yeah. And so we still see that today. Yeah. So anyways, um, that just shows how easily people with good motivations, good hearts can go too far in their, um, their attempt to refute error. Mm. And so anyways, that is all we're going to cover tonight. I know that's a lot, but there's still more. And so we will talk about the other stuff next week. Thank you and God bless.